Hello and welcome to Asia Stream, where we track, report and analyze the issues and interests of the world's largest region. I am Waj Khan. This week, in our last episode before the holidays, we take a look back at 2021, review the most crucial stories from the Indo-Pacific and assess what they may tell us about the year to come. We kick off with a rundown of this year's biggest stories from Asia and then follow up with our feature presentation, Asia Stream's first Editors and Reporters Roundtable, an in-depth discussion with an all-star editorial panel about what's ticking in Asian news. You're listening to The Sound of Asia, streaming in your ear. From Nikkei Asia, this is Asia Stream. Now, it's that time of the year when everyone's got a list of some sort. Whether it's a holiday shopping list or a top 10 countdown list or a person or trends of the year list. In the news media world, such lists are usually decided by editors. But here at Asia Stream, we're handing you the reins. What were the most popular stories from Asia? Which stories did well on social media? Which stories were shared widely? Which stories mattered? Here to discuss Asia Stream's first Reader's Choice Review is our business and markets reporter, Jack Stone Truett. Hey, Jack, good to have you back. Good to be back, Wash. So, Jack, let's start with the basics. How are we deciding what stories are the most popular? Well, we just took a look at the data. Almost a quarter of our readers are from the U.S. The next quarter are from Southeast Asia. Next after that is Japan. We have an increasing number of readers from India, the Middle East, and Europe, so this is truly a global crowd. Brilliant. So let's kick things off. What was our most read story of the year? Our top story was news in August that a third Sinovac vaccine was better than mixing it with others. Now, that's one of the couple of Chinese vaccines which were floated this year. Right. And really, it's illustrative of the fact that people were hungry for vaccine news all year. Right. And what's number two? India, can we talk openly about sex, please? What? That's the headline. Uh, it's a great op-ed from a writer in India calling upon the country to get with the times and increase its sex education curriculum. So COVID and sex certainly make for great headlines. What else do you have? And rounding out the top three was our free-to-read blog during the Tokyo Olympics. Right. Well, a bronze medal isn't so bad, is it now? Uh, but Jack, what else stands out in your most read stories list? Well, five of our 10 best performing stories were pandemic related, unsurprisingly, be it our Nikkei COVID Recovery Index database to a major story on China ordering a bunch of PCR tests before the first public case was ever reported. China ordering PCR tests before the COVID outbreak. So a huge increase in orders for the tests started back in May of 2019. For some context, that's right around the Notre Dame Cathedral catching on fire. That is a while ago. Right. And so unsurprisingly, it kind of went nuts on social media. So speaking of social media, Jack, um, let's talk about my favorite love-hate relationship with social media. What stories did well there? So our most liked tweet by far was the news of Hidalin Diaz winning the Philippines' first ever gold medal. It was also our most retweeted story. And the Tokyo Games in general had a bunch of first-time medalists from various Asian countries which were all very popular stories. I remember uh, Ms. Diaz. That was, uh, that was a great moment in mm -hmm. the Olympics. But there were also some embarrassing moments for the organizers as well, right? Yeah. Uh, people might love to share good news, but the story that actually got the most clicks on Twitter 
was when the head of the Olympic Committee in Japan made a fool of himself saying that meetings with women take extra time. I remember Mr. Mori was fired uh, for his comments from what I recall. Right. So what about Facebook? Well, some things are all too predictable, Waj. Uh, The most popular story on Facebook was about the birth of baby twin pandas at the Tokyo Zoo in June. (laughs) And, uh, of course, how predictable. But I also take it that uh, they did well on Instagram as well? They were actually uh, passed by a princess on Instagram, Waj. So like a big royal wedding type of thing? No, actually. It was a much quieter affair than that. Uh, Our most popular Instagram photo was Princess Mako of Japan, who got married in October to her college sweetheart, who's actually just a regular guy, which huh. is part of the reason why it was such big news. Ah, that's that's good news. That's kind of sweet. Pandas and princesses. That's uh, social media for you, Jack. Well, it was a tough year. People needed uh, some feel-good news every now and then. Well, this has uh, been a very illuminating look at uh, what our audience was interested in in 2021. Jack Stone Truett, thank you for your time. See you next year, and I'll give you the panda update then. Happy holidays. That was our business and markets reporter, Jack Stone Truitt. But now it's time for our feature presentation, an end-of-the-year editors and reporters roundtable with some of our finest staffers who will be weighing in from across the world with what were some of the most critical, indeed crucial, stories from Asia in 2021 and what are the news trends to watch in 2022. I know we are straddling many different time zones here, So I want to say thank you all for joining Asia Stream today. In Brussels, we have our executive editor, Michael Peel. Hello, Michael. Hi, Waj. And in New York City is our U.S. editor, Ken Moriyasu. Hi, Waj. Hi, Ken. And from Taipei, our dynamic duo of reporters, Annie Chang-Ting-Fang and Lolly Lee. Hi, hello. Hello. Excellent. All right. So I'm going to start with you, Michael. Um, It's uh, as executive editor, this question must go to you. And but it's going to be a simple one. What is the biggest story in Asia right now? Because I have a sneaky feeling you're going to say China, which is not a surprise. But would you also agree that the biggest story in Asia is also perhaps the biggest story in the world? And if you do, and if you don't, either way, where do you think the China story is headed in 2022? And how do you think it evolved in 2021? Well, I thought you said it was going to be an easy question, Waj. Um, (laughs) That's a tricky one on on many levels. But I think the first thing I would say is that, um, of course, regrettably, the biggest story in Asia has been the biggest story everywhere again for the second successive year it's been the pandemic and what that has shown really um is that these these so many stories these days it doesn't really help to look at them regionally because they're they're so global in nature and of course we had a whole episode last week on um, the impact of the pandemic and politics on other factors on global supply chains that make all of the uh, um, consumer goods that that we're um, all so familiar with with having at our fingertips and and that that's really one theme um, I think of how kind of many regional stories we see in Nikkei Asia that are in fact global stories both because of Asia's international heft but also because of the interconnectedness of the modern world 
Now, on China, clearly, um, it's been a very tough year for uh, relations between China and other powers, both in Asia and in in the West. Um, and you know, it's contributed to this atmosphere of, of mutual suspicion, mutual tension. You have commentators talking about ominously about new Cold Wars and so on. Um, I think the great test in 2022 will be, um, can some of these tensions be managed and dialed down? Because um, these are manifesting themselves on so many levels in so many places. There's the the, the worries about hot conflicts uh, in in the South China Sea region, of, of other sort of trade conflicts um, where uh, countries, uh, China and other countries are at loggerheads and uh, retaliating against each other um, financially. Um, All of these things, in some sense, undermine us all. And the question is, how are the different powers in 2022, China and other powers, going to manage all of this? That was a fascinating appraisal of the China story, but uh, let's go across the Taiwan Strait now to Annie Tingfang, Nikkei Asia's award-winning reporter who has carved out a crucial beat from Taipei, the semiconductor chip industry, which, as you may know, inputs uh, through a sophisticated supply chain into so many other crucial industries across the globe. Annie, how has this unconventional yet important beat of yours uh, evolved? And where is the supply chain story today? The chip crunch, as we call it, which uh, some are also calling the mother of all stories as it links back to everything from global inflation to the US-China trade war. Where is this story going? Supply chain crunch and chip shortage is really on every tech executive's mind and that hit a swap of industries from car, networking equipment, PCs to your iPhones and iPad. And as building chip factories take two to three years, it's not a problem that could be solved overnight. I think what's interesting, and it's a privilege for us to be reporting from Asia, is that here has all kinds of suppliers supplying displays, cameras, all kinds of chips, modules, print circuit boards, memory chips, and PC, game console, and smartphone makers. It has the whole ecosystem here in Asia, and everyone, every company has their own story and their own quotes and their own views of the chip shortage. That's why we could piece by piece, piece together the story of how this chip shortage go this bad and why is it so difficult to fix? Right. So um, I'm going to move on to uh, Ken Moriasu and uh, Lolly, I'll circle back to you in just a bit. Uh, But from the China question to the semiconductor question, which is sort of related uh, to the trade war in a bit because it has its basis there, Uh, even before the pandemic struck. Ken, I must take you back to earlier this year when uh, we were planning launching this podcast uh, here uh, in New York. And um, it was a very different uh, start to the year. Uh, Joe Biden uh, was about to take charge, and uh, he was being very clear that he's going to have a very different uh, playbook on China uh, versus Donald Trump. Um, And uh, in a way, he did. uh, But in a way, he didn't. 
Uh, of course, uh, the plan didn't go um, according to plan uh, for Joe Biden. He got bogged down by domestic considerations. For example, he got bogged down by Afghanistan. He got bogged down by his infrastructure bill. But in some ways, as far as the Biden administration is concerned, um, it followed the Trump playbook on uh, Taiwan, for example, Biden inviting Taiwanese representatives uh, earlier this year to his inauguration, but also in a way they found common ground, for example, on uh, the environment. How do you think the year 2021 evolved as far as Biden's playbook on China's concern? And where do you think it's going in 2022? Thanks, Waj. I think the Biden people, um, as you say, try to uh, change some aspects uh, of foreign policy from the Trump years. And I think there are two pillars here. And those are number one is to work with allies and two, renew the enduring sources of national strength. But as you rightly said, the situation in Afghanistan really messed that up. But also I'd like to say there are some aspects of uh, policy that will not change, hasn't changed from the Trump years and will not change in whoever comes into office from here. And that's the tech decoupling. And that's because there is a recognition in the Pentagon and the national security community that the next war, uh, presuming that war will be with China, will be very digital and will be uh, all a matter of who takes down the GPS satellite first, uh, enabled to um, uh, hamper um, the operations of the enemy. So if that's the case, um, the Pentagon cannot have Chinese chips uh, and devices uh, spread across the US infrastructure. So there will be inevitably a decoupling in the tech world, and that is not going to change. So the US-China rivalry puts me on a flight path straight to Taiwan and to our reporter, Lolly Lee. Lolly, now, considering your coverage of the tech aspect of this rivalry, where we've seen the US pretty much throw everything at China, right? From slamming sanctions against Huawei to investigating Harvard professors with links to China. How does this chip industry factor into the broader US versus China competition? Huawei was uh, added on the so-called entity list by the US uh, Commerce Department back in uh, 2019. And that's when people realize how crucial semiconductor is because it really is the heart and brain to empower all the electronic devices from smartphones, PCs, servers to military techs. And, and China has been trying to increase its self-sufficiency in semiconductor um, in, in its uh, 2025 uh, campaign. But this self-sufficiency has been curbed by the US government because uh, there's only a handful of American companies that control the uh, crucial equipment of chip making and the crucial software of designing chips. So it's all about the, the rivalry between the US and China and how, how US is using their um, entity list as a weapon to curb the rise of China's tech advancement. Where do you think this is going? The battle between the tech battle between the U.S. China is going on and on, and we can we, we thought at the beginning that the Biden administration is going to ease the tech restriction a little bit on on China, 
But it appears that it's the other way around that the US government still continues to blacklist more and more Chinese tech companies. And actually many of the blacklisted Chinese tech company we never heard of before. And we can notice that there's a trend that the US is trying to block more and more um, Chinese academic institutions that would be like like blocking the root of their tech advancement. So it is foreseeable that this um, the US move to continue to block China's rise in tech advancement will going on and on and continue. Now, quickly pivoting back uh, to Michael Peel, executive editor. Michael, we've uh, gone on about China, but uh, I must admit, uh, China, yes, is the elephant in the room, but it takes up a lot of oxygen. So here's another trick question for you. As our executive editor, how, what would you rank the second most important story in Asia besides China? Well, I think uh, it's a story which is uh, both regional and, and global, um, right, again, which is climate change. And um, I think that the last months of 2021 have um, really shone a very um, harsh light, um, both on the global uh, heating problem, but also on the particular um, problems that uh, and challenges that, that Asia faces here. And um, it was striking that the uh, COP26 uh, climate summit in, in Scotland um, in November uh, coincided with a spike in, in, in coal prices and um, uh, energy shortages uh, from China to gas in, in Europe. And it really brought home this uh, question of um, you know, how is the world going to shift from from fossil fuels, especially at times when uh, there can be shortages for both industrial reasons or political reasons if, if countries choose to, to block supply. Um, and in Asia, the particular manifestation of that is coal. Um, and many, many countries, um, including China, but uh, not limited to it, Indonesia and others, are still using a lot of coal. And uh, one of the uh, striking stories that UK Asia um, had before the climate summit in Glasgow was from Indonesia and talking about the um, political problem that uh, Indonesia has a burgeoning solar industry um, but the main um, state utility is tied into these fossil fuel uh, fired energy contracts and so the, the, there's the possibility of solar energy supply but the politics and economics of it in Indonesia have meant that it can't yet be tapped and that's led to a lot of frustration but it's not just about frustration it's about the biggest problem facing the world at the moment which is global heating and we see that debate really sharply in Asia. Do you feel that as um, climate change has become a part uh, and parcel of uh, uh, Western political uh, discourse and debate, um, whether in the halls of uh, uh, Congress and Senate here in the US or even uh, in Europe, uh, do you see that developing in uh, different political economies across Asia as something which could become an inherent part of political discourse? Absolutely, Wise. I think um, there are two elements to this, right? Well, there are more than two elements, but uh, on the one hand, there's the kind of technical economic element on, which also has a political dimension of um, the, the transition, i.e. moving from fossil fuel generated energy to leaving the fossil fuels in the ground and going to renewable sources. But there's also 
um, apart from the fact of the transition, there's the nature of the transition. And the, you, what, what this has really highlighted is the importance that you, the transition is something that is widely seen as desirable. Apart from a few people at the extremes, uh, most people uh, in, in, in most places accept that uh, global heating and everything it brings, including natural disasters in, in increased quantities, which of course is something that several Asian countries, uh, um, such as the Philippines, uh, uh, suffer from. Um, the, you can't have that transition without uh, softening the impact. And that's really the challenge for governments and international organisations, to find a way to make the transition just which is the language that the European Union uh, uses about this. In other words, to make sure that the consequences of moving from fossil fuels to renewable resources are not that people are suddenly thrown out of work um, without alternatives, and not that businesses are suddenly shut down overnight because they can't get a, a reliable energy supply. In 2022, we really need to grapple in Asia and elsewhere with this idea of the justness of the energy transition. Uh, coming back to you, um, Annie and Lolly, you are situated in Taiwan, which has, in a way, become a possible flashpoint, a, a, a possible flashpoint between the world's uh, superpowers. There's, uh, we hear reports, and we do report, um, on uh, Chinese incursions into Taiwan's um, ADIZ. How does that affect day-to-day -day life, um, and especially when it comes to reporting uh, from across the mainland as well uh, on such a sensitive industry. The semiconductor industry has become such a sensitive topic, not only in Taiwan, but also in China. And because of the pandemic, it limits our um, capability to, to do business um, to do business trip as frequent as in the past. So it is uh, indeed um, quite challenging for us to cover the semiconductor industry uh, across the Taiwan Strait that we have to rely on our sources that we built in the past. And then we have to be very carefully to, to deal with the wordings, to deal with how we phrase the sentences when we're covering such sensitive uh, topics nowadays. Right. Ken, I must... I must confess that uh, this time a year ago, um, I would uh, walk past your desk here in New York and I would see you monitoring uh, the movements of um, uh, U.S. naval vessels um, in the Taiwan Strait and elsewhere in the Indo-Pacific. Things were tense as far as the security paradigm of the Indo-Pacific. Um, are you still monitoring um, US, the USS Ronald Reagan or do you think the security picture has shifted do you think that tensions have been dialed down and do you think that as far as the region is concerned uh, things are slightly well safer no i don't think it's safer at all but i think the whole tension um is based on a, a little bit of misunderstanding and misreading of china by the american military but the reality is that the ball has started to roll and it's very difficult to to stop the ball from running to be a bit more specific everything i th i think the tension began uh in a congressional hearing in march by the then indo-pacific commander philip davidson admiral Phil philip davidson who said um he, who told congress 
that he believes in the next six years, the Taiwan threat can manifest, is the word he used. And that kind of was interpreted by the national security community that China, within the next six years, uh, by 2027, will have the capacity to invade Taiwan. And once uh, China does invade Taiwan, uh, it'll be very difficult for America and its allies to kick Ta uh, China out of Taiwan. Therefore, we need to um, be prepared to prevent that from happening. I'd asked all of you, um, particularly uh, um, starting with you, Mike, uh, I, to send in stories you feel passionate about, stories which indicate uh, the where our coverage is headed, stories which are important. Now, um, I'm reviewing your list here, and it's quite a quite an eclectic lineup. You have a you have a cyber uh, uh, scam story uh, from Cambodia. You have a story out of uh, Myanmar's uh, uh, artists who are pushing back uh, against the regime and. Uh, I would like to know, uh, Mike, uh, why these particular stories? Well, I think what, what links those two stories, uh, Waj, uh, is, is a, a, a theme both within Asia and globally, which is the rise of authoritarianism and the counterpoint, which is the resistance against it. Um, in Cambodia, you have in Hun Sen, the world's longest serving prime minister, who, as you say, um, often uncovered much uh, outside of the country, um, has quietly notched up, it will be in January, 37 years in power. Um, and his country um, holds the uh, uh, rotating chair of, uh, of ASEAN, the group of uh, Southeast Asian nations. So, so, so has political influence through there. And this story um, uh, by our um, correspondent in Phnom Penh, uh, Sean Turton, it's actually a series of stories um, which uh, he, he's midway through now, has really exposed um, how Cambodia, which has become a real client state of China and uh, possibly a strongest ally in Southeast Asia, um, is now causing Beijing a problem because corruption is so rife in Cambodia under this uh, sclerotic um, 36 year old regime that um, there are now gangs which conduct cyber scams from Cambodia um, and they traffic Chinese nationals um, who have become the victims of this and are tricked and forced um, sometimes with violence into working um, for these uh, these scam houses um, and China now is in a position where um, it wants to crack down on this because um, it's fueling problems. It's Chinese people who are suffering um, and are victims of this. And so you have this um, very sort of uh, illustrative cautionary tale of you know, one of the very dark sides of authoritarianism, that it, this massive sort of corruption that often surrounds it and how it's got out of the control even of Cambodia's patron China. The other story that you mentioned um, was one which uh, I thought was really striking was after the coup in Myanmar earlier this year uh, it spawned a, a whole sort of sphere of protest art of people who were incredibly angry that the um, country was once again back under military rule which of course it had suffered for uh, almost 50 years until this imperfect um, but nevertheless uh, real semi-transition to a, 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 a country where there were elections and where civilians played some role in government, even if the military 
always loomed large in the background. And so that really brings forth this central issue in the world today of so many regimes around the world that are authoritarian or sort of hybrid, they're notionally democratic in you know, countries like this in Europe, um, but are becoming less so. Obviously, it's a theme in the US is the erosion of US democracy. And so this struggle, I think, of uh, this resistance to that authoritarian trend is something that is going to be a big theme uh, in Asia next year and also around the world. Moving on to you, um, Annie and Lolly, I... Um... Uh, I'm firstly intimidated by the sheer volume of reporting um, that the both of you put out um, on this crucial industry. Uh, but when um, I asked the both of you to send in uh, your list of stories, um, which you feel passionate about, I saw a pattern. Uh, the one pattern, of course, is the, the, the tech battle between the U.S. and China. Uh, the second pattern, which one understands, uh, is the rise of Chinese manufacturing and the Chinese um, ability, or rather the Chinese resolve uh, for stockpiling and beating um, other global competitors. And then, of course, uh, within the industry, the two uh, major movers and shakers, TSMC and Foxconn, both of them are adapting. Uh, TSMC is building up capacity outside Taiwan. Foxconn is getting into EVs. So, if I were to ask you real quickly as we reach the end of the show, if I were to ask you, what is the most important trend here? I would say that U.S.-China tech tension and U.S. Ten intention to curb Chinese tech advancement and also the China's counter moves and national campaign to cut reliance on American technologies and to nurture their own national champions in all kinds of segments. If you only have like a few minutes to read uh, during the holiday period, I really recommend you our story on Beijing's secret tech champions that we detail China's efforts to review and replace all the American technologies in their chip making industry. Even a tiny screw in manufacturing equipment, now they want alternatives so that they could avoid risks of being cut off. And I really think that the U.S. intention to curb Chinese tech advancement manufacture a lot of new emerging companies and investment opportunities inside China because they want to build a self-reliant sector. The geopolitics, this theme has been incorporated into every topics we cover in the tech industry. Right, and I'm uh, wondering how that'll play out in the larger scheme of uh, strategic rivalry between uh, the U.S. and China. Is that is that move and other moves happen? Um, thank you, Annie and Lolly, for that. Uh, Ken Moriasu, um, you picked this story in particular. It's called the All Turkic Corridor Heralds Rise of New Eurasian Political Bloc. It's quite a headline. It's quite a declaration. Why, Ken Moriasu? Did you take this story from a very, well, uncovered or un undiscovered part of the world? Nikkei Asia has really um, accelerated its coverage of Turkey over the past year. And that's because of an understanding that Turkey is probably going to be a major player in the new world order. And that's because if you look at the world today, uh, there are two obvious superpowers. 
the US and China. And I think there are four elements that make a superpower. One is a huge economy, one is a huge uh, population, one is a huge military, and most importantly, four is global ambitions. And if you look around the world, not many countries fit all four, check all four boxes. And then I, it came to me that Turkey does fit all four, because Turkey itself is a small country. But if you look at the geopolitical uh, location of Turkey and the potential um, sphere of influence that it could have, then it fits four, four boxes, because Turkey could be the re representative of the whole Islamic world, that would add a huge population, huge economy. It could be the representative of the Turkic world, which spreads out to Central Asia. But because for a while Erdogan was focused on being the, the head of the Muslim world, uh, he wasn't paying too much attention uh, to this uh, Central Asia connection. But uh, he hasn't really succeeded in becoming the head of the Arabic Islamic world. So he has very recently turned his attention to the Central Asian bloc. And if he does uh, manage to um, unite all this bloc, uh, then he is, I think he um, advances closer to Turkey's ambition of becoming the third major player in the world after the US and China. That's very interesting. And uh, last but not least, uh, Michael Peel. Asia is not uh, an easy beat, so to say. There are these regimes which are, well, tough to maneuver around. So the question then is, um, how do you plan, to borrow an American term, on quarterbacking uh, Nikkei Asia's coverage uh, through uh, these sensitive, prickly areas? What's the game plan here? Uh, because, of course, the safety of our correspondents, reporters, contributors is supreme. But then so is the story. Well, Waj, um, I'm not sure I would style myself a captain or a quarterback. Uh, I'm, I just aim to contribute, as, as I hope all journalists do, somewhere on the deck or uh, somewhere at the line of, of scrimmage to what is, after all, a, uh, uh, at its best, journalism, uh, a, a, something in the public interest that, that brings to light um, powerful facts and analysis that uh, people really need to know about, both in the countries we cover and around the world. And I think that that, that has to be the guiding principle of, of any journalism, whether it's in a you know the world's most thriving democracy, of which there aren't really many, if any, at the moment, or um, or whether it's in a sort of hard authoritarian state, you know, to um, uh, to to get the facts right and to assemble as many of them as it's possible to do so um, in in the in the conditions which may, as you say, be very difficult. And yes, safety, of course, is an absolutely crucial. Um, consideration and uh, um, editors um, owe it uh, to, uh, to 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 all reporters and 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 the institutions they work for to 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 to, to keep people safe. No story is worth dying for. Um, um, and uh, one thing that's been very interesting um, and striking for me is that. Um, working for the Financial Times, uh, I, I was never a war correspondent, but I was in some difficult situations sometimes, including in the in the Middle East during the um, Arab Spring. And there were, there were people who, uh, the FT in London, editors who were always looking out for me and in touch and making sure that I was safe and I had options to leave places if they seemed a little bit sketchy. And suddenly I found myself on the other end of the phone uh, when uh, Kabul fell to the, the Taliban and uh, 
a, a freelancer, Kandiko Gupta, who'd been filing some excellent work for us uh, from Kabul, um, suddenly, like so many others, was, was taken by surprise. And we had to um, work together to make sure that she could uh, get to a safe place and then um, exit the country when she, she wanted to. And, uh, you know, that, that really brought home how um, tricky these situations are, where you're operating with imperfect information, um, when in a volatile situation where the intentions of the Taliban, uh, the immediate intentions were, were very uncertain. What would it mean um, for Afghans, for foreigners who were around? Um, and so that was, you know, a very intense period where, you know, the big priority was to make sure that Kanika was safe and was, was, was able to get out when she needed to and unfortunately she was able to and of course the situation in Afghanistan has uh, only deteriorated since for the many people there and we and others have uh, covered that very powerfully and that is a great worry for next year the future of Afghanistan and the suffering of the people of that nation which has already suffered greatly. Of course, Afghanistan is perhaps the saddest story developing in Asia right now for over 23 million people. That's almost two-thirds of the population in the war-torn country are starving. And the scale of the humanitarian disaster is so massive that both the United Nations and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation have adopted different resolutions just this week to pledge support. But the thorny issue of Taliban recognition remains. With that, I must thank Nikkei Asia's executive editor, Michael Peel, our U.S. editor, Ken Moriasu, and our tech reporters, Annie Ting-Fang and Lolly Lee, for joining our first editors and reporters roundtable. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you much. Thank you. Bye. That is a wrap for our show today and for 2021. We are off for the holidays next week. Thank you for listening and we wish you a very happy new year. This episode of Asia Stream was produced by Jack Stone Truett. Our theme music is What's the Angle by Shane Ivers. I'm your host, Waj S. Khan. Talk to you in 2022.